Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach starring Jake and Jeff McClure. So this is The Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure speaking to you. On the line with me, I have Elder Baldy as opposed to Younger Baldy, um, who is Jeff McClure. Uh, we are the personal wealth coach. That's me. That you, you have. Yes. We are both bald. That's mm-hmm. thus the elder and younger baldies. But you can easily tell the difference between us by the color of our beards. Yes. Very much so. His, I have a great beard, white, almost white, and yes. his is kind of black. Right. So between the two of us, it's easy to understand. I'm also wearing a hat because it's cold in here and he is not. So you should be able to tell us apart easily in all future right. conversations. Yes. Right. Exactly. All right, that's good. Right now we've got that out of the way. We probably ought to do the disclosures. That was a disclosure. We, I mean, we are bald. We are bald. That's the first disclosure. It's important to know we are bald, bearded men, and you might have better use of your time on a Saturday morning or whenever you're listening than to be listening to two bald, bearded men. There, the first disclosure is out of the way. We think it's important. True, true. We're gonna. I'm listening to one. Well, actually, I guess I'm listening myself too. So I am listening to two bald bearded men on a Saturday morning. If you can say that quickly five times, you're not drunk. You hope. Right. So let's talk about disclosures. Yes. Uh, This is the personal wealth coach. Uh, It is not just a radio program or a podcast. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. We have to tell you that because the SEC wants us to. Mm -hmm. Um, We just because we're registered with the SEC as a firm doesn't mean that the SEC likes us in any way. There's no implication of liking. That's a government agency and they don't do that. So there's no approval or liking, even if we seek it. Approval seeking doesn't really work with the SEC. Okay, so that's out of the way. Second is that I just said that we were registered in, in, in doing business uh, as fiduciaries giving investment advice and we're on the radio and we can't do fiduciary investment advice on the radio because it means we would have to know all of you and we would have to have some form of private channel of communication to each of you that none of the others could hear while we were doing this. Sounds like telepathy to me. Do you think we could do that? I think it is theoretically possible, but improbable. Improbable at this point. Okay, so that being said, we can't give you direct investment advice on the air. Instead, we're going to be giving educational information. We're hopefully going to fill your brain with knowledge, or at least try. I can give some investment advice. Go ahead. Buy low, sell high. If you buy an investment that you want to go up and it doesn't go up, don't buy it in the first place. Yes. If it does go up, sell it. If it goes higher, go buy a beer. A beer? After you sell it and it goes up anyway. What makes you why what if I don't want a beer? Well, you stimulate the economy when you buy the beer. You can just keep the can on the shelf or something. Aha. I suppose that is reasonable. Okay. Right. So that being said, the next disclosure after beer buying would be you wanna you wanna deem to tell us what the next one is? Well, the information we present on this educational radio program since we're not giving advice, it's educational, has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty 
or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And especially make no guarantee or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of unsaid information. Actually, I can make a guarantee. Anything that's unsaid is incomplete. Unless its completeness was its lack of saying. Oh, we could go on like that all day. Yeah, we could. This this is a very deep philosophical conversation, but instead we're going to move on to the next disclosure, which is... Which is that... You got it. You go ahead. Yes. We don't pay for this radio program, nor are we paid to do the radio program. However, we do pay for advertisement for the radio program, as does the studio. So there's a partnership in promoting this, but we're not paid to do it, nor do we pay to do it. And that is the last of our disclosures, I believe. Yeah, and we've got, we've got two questions waiting out there from Inquisitor John. Thank you, John. Okay. John asked us, with recent global events, particularly the pandemic, inflation, and global food impacts, that, will, that there will be a paradigm shift from globalization to more nationalism and from just in time to just in case. Yes. Well... Yes, with a big caveat. Yes, plus. Yeah. Um, There's basically going, I think, this is what I'm seeing happening. There's basically the world is becoming um, polarized. Wait, it already had two poles. Are you saying like there's going to be a West Pole and an East Pole now? Yes, like there used to be. Oh, okay. So we have a North Pole, a South Pole, an East Pole, and a West Pole. The West Pole is somewhere between Europe and the United States, and the East Pole is somewhere between Russia and China. Actually, if I were going to place the West Pole, I would place it pretty much somewhere in the United States, because oddly enough, Japan is part of the Western world. Yeah, it kind of stretches it around. And so is Taiwan, and Taiwan is a big economy. Um, but there's, there is going to be some change in Uh, We, during the period of globalization and the new world order after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, there was a tendency to go truly global, look for low uh, labor costs wherever you could find them, no matter what kind of government the country had, um, and to try to sell to those same countries. And it was really good for the world economy. It was really good for our economy. That's gone. And when it comes to just in time, yes, I think we're going to go into a period where we are going to take a hard look at anything that's vital to the United States economy and say, how secure is that source of what's vital? Um, China is coming under suspicion. Russia is obviously off the table, but the world, meaning the, the particularly the developed world, well, actually the whole world, was largely dependent upon everybody who produces oil in a large on a large scale continuing to produce the oil. And Europe, for example, as many people are aware right now, was very, very, very dependent upon Russian gas. We successive presidents, matter of fact, every president we've had for the last several presidents have warned the Europeans, particularly the Germans, that that's a really bad idea. And one of the things I think a lot of people are unaware of is uh, Chancellor Merkel, who was uh, Chancellor, the boss of, the leader of Germany for many, many years, really believed sincerely that economic cooperation would lead to peace and prosperity for everybody. And there was really no need to have an armed forces or not much of one. And that by becoming really good customers of Russia, Russia would change its stripes, which is in 
really crazy because Russia is a bear and bears don't have stripes. It's a striped bear. We're going to mix right. these metaphors as hard as we can. And that is now out the window. There is no longer the assumption, obviously, by anybody that I know of, except the Koch brothers, that Russia is a good place to do business. Um, China is still right vital to what we do, to what we do in the United States and what happens in the world. They just make so much stuff so well that it's a problem. But one of the things I think we have to become aware of, and I think we are becoming aware of, is that to the degree we are dependent for our survival or our viability on China, we're probably making a mistake. And I think, John, you're correct. I think you're going to see, instead of the dependent uh, dependence upon, we order, it'll be here in a certain number of days so we don't have to have any reserves. Um, we're going to go back across the board to we need to keep some cushion and some inventory of stuff we need built up and we need to have it coming from reliable sources. Uh, that's just a reality. I, I, it's happening in my house. I don't know if it's happening in your house. We have several weeks right now worth of canned and non-perishable food sitting in our utility room. And I don't think we made a conscious decision. I don't think my wife made a conscious decision to do that because of any specific thing going on. But twice we have been through scares now that maybe the food won't be on the shelves in the, in the supermarket. And so there's a tendency when that happens to buy the stuff and set it aside. And of course, then you got to rotate through it so that you don't exceed the shelf life and all that kind of stuff. So John, yep, you're correct. It's less efficient. That's one of the reasons prices are going up. We might as well just get used to the fact that the low prices we have seen are probably a thing of the past because as soon as you start buying stuff in advance and storing it, it becomes it lowers efficiency and raises prices. Uh, so, so John, you're you're correct. The world has changed. It's one of the, this is one of those moments in time that for the next several decades, high school students and middle school students will read about it in their history book and have to take tests on this stuff, just like we did about the lead up to World War II and and things like that, and then they'll promptly forget it until they do it again. Yeah, that's that's the way humans work. We remember as long as we can, and then when we can't anymore, we just repeat what we can't remember. It's fantastic. Yeah. So you probably want to go to the other question. Yeah. Is there any truth in that? There's a great, this is a fantastic question. Thank you for letting me take it. Um, this is, a, a Inquisitor John has, as is traditional, taken a picture of um, the Wall Street Journal with a circle on it saying, Oh, and and so I've, I know what article he's talking about, and he circled it in pen, and then he sent it to me digitally, so I can look it up on the digital Wall Street Journal. But in this case, I really don't have to. Uh, John, this is a fantastic question. I know I say that a lot, but this is this, you've you've uh, you've outdone yourself. Um, oh. The question here is: Is there any truth to this? And then the circle is. In, in this article, it says most of the return of the stock market over time comes from a few high-performing super stocks. More than 95% of all stocks over their lifetime as public companies collectively don't even outperform cash. And more than half deliver negative returns, according to finance professor Hendrik Bessenbinder of Arizona State University. He's one of my favorite economists. He wrote a paper back in 2018 that this is based on. And it sounds like what this quote means is the opposite of what this quote means. 
it sounds like this says more than 95% of stocks don't make any money, don't profit. Because it says more than 95% of all stocks over their lifetime as public companies collectively don't even outperform cash. It's true. This is deeply, deeply true. And it sounds terrifying on the surface because it's defying all of our logic about the stock market being a great innovator. Here's the quote part that you have to recognize in here. Over the lifetime as a public company. Public companies don't last forever. And if it's over their lifetime, that means that they died. <laughs> if it covers their whole lifetime. And sometimes the end of the company is much more traumatic than what was built up to it. That's what bankruptcy is about. And there's, there's another piece in here. If you don't count dividends, this is true. So what, what are we talking about here? I actually talked about this paper in 2018 when it was published. It was published in the journal Finance, and I talked about it on the air. I'm going to have to look this up. But basically what I said at the time was this big controversial thing um, you know, uh, Warren Buffett is known as a buy and hold investor. And the whole subject that I was talking about multiple years ago, four years ago now when this paper was published, was that buy and hold works really, 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 really well for a long time. But there are very few companies that are around for more than about 70 years, which means that if you buy and hold forever, it's almost a sure thing that you'll lose money if you can live for more than 70 years from the time of your purchase. The life cycle of a company doesn't last that long. And we can go through a lot of companies that have gone bankrupt. I mean, uh, General Motors, uh, Enron, um, Westinghouse, U.S. Leather. I mean, the, the names, even without getting to Lehman Brothers and places like that, Every corporation eventually ends, and that's, a, that's what is being said here, and that the ones that are left, so this paper goes from 1926 to, to 2016, and he's looking at this, all stocks that registered during that time period, what happened to them? How did they do? And the ones that are left, this is a 90-year period, so the ones that are left are the ones that are called the super stocks. So IBM still exists. It was around as international business machines and made mechanical typewriters and things like that. Well, what do they do now? Well, they do a lot of things. They're not really international business machines anymore. They're just IBM. They're a large company that's doing a lot of stuff. Has it made a profit during the lifetime of the company? Well, pretty much. There have been a few years where it didn't do so well, but it's made a profit the whole time. Most companies fail. General Electric was on the way to failure, just like Westinghouse was, when Jack Welch stepped in and revived it. And then it fell again, and then it got revived again. So you can take a company and revive it. Nokia is working on that right now. They could have disappeared. So the reality is that you can't just say, I will own a company for the rest of my life if you live for a thousand years. Because that company's not likely to be there. Uh, there aren't any companies that are a thousand years old. I, I just hate to break that to you, uh, but that's true. No companies are a thousand years old at this point. Lloyd's of London is several hundred years old, and it's 
kind of known as being around a long time, but that doesn't mean it couldn't make some really bad decisions and go away tomorrow. I don't think you can buy shares in it, but the Roman Catholic Church might disagree with you on that. You are correct. The Roman Catholic Church has been an entity for a long time. I'm not sure that it had ownership in the same sense as a company, though. Uh, it, it is, it is kind of known as a corpus rather than a company, which is... So, uh, all that being said, this is a, is, is a fantastic uh, paper, and the part that they're quoting here isn't the best part of it. The part that should be quoted is the reason why he is such a good economist. His concept in the paper was you got to innovate or you're going to die, that you have to continually be innovating in what you do in your life cycle or you turn into these failed companies. And so uh, he's kind of known as the high priest of moonshot investing, um, speaking of churches and so on. He's the guy that basically said, if you're not spending money on something that can make you revenue in the future, then whatever replaces the technology you have now is going to kill your company. And for that purpose, he's one of my favorite economists on the planet. All right, you, have, you look like you want to say something. Addressing John's question, it's a good idea to read. If you read the whole article, uh, Jason Zwig has some very good things to say, and but you need to be careful how you read them. That is a little piece taken from an article warning about the dangers of ESOPs. Yeah. The employee stock option or purchase plans, these companies that are owned by their own employees. And there's a lot of positive to employee stock ownership plans. Companies that have them historically have done far better than companies that didn't have them. Their stock has done better. Um, the, the productivity is better. The retention of employees is better. There's a lot of pluses to it. The danger that Jason Zwick, who I generally agree with, um, except on rare occasion where I think he's completely in left field, the danger he's pointing out is if you, as an example, let's give an example for those who may or may not remember Enron. Um, the Enron employee stock ownership plan resulted in many of its employees, perhaps a majority of their employees, having their entire retirement plan Enron stock because it- Enron was basically giving the stock to the employees. And if they put money in, they give them more stock. And that's really wonderful. And the stock kept going up and they got really excited about it. And then it went away. And when it went away, it went completely away, like to zero. Diversification is the argument that he's making. Putting your, if you're going to work for a company for 30 years, and that, by the way, is the, some of the articles suggest that. And you put all your money in the company stock. Companies historically don't do well over a 30-year period. Very few companies do really well over a 30-year period. Now, this is a 90-year period that the article he's quoting refers to. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty, he's right. Only 5% of the companies survived and did well over a 90-year period. But, but very few people live long enough to buy and hold. I will, let me give you another, can I give another example? Sure. I know some people whose parents or even grandparents made a great deal of money in a particular class of stock where they worked. And it's a class. And very specifically, it is the energy class, oil. And during the time that their parents were alive, now these people are elderly now, but during the time their parents were alive, the stock in these companies went up phenomenally because mm-hmm. they increased the use of the use of oil increased dramatically in the United States for a thousand reasons. However, even though we've had a recent run-up in prices in oil companies, 
If you go back 10 or 15 years and you look at the major oil company stock price, you'll find out it has been generally, this is obviously going to change from one company to another, but generally speaking, it has not kept up with inflation. So their decision to continue to hold that company because their father or grandfather bought it and made a lot of money on it. From an emotional point of view, I'm sure it's, it's valid and we support it. From a financial point of view, there's the example. Uh, my parents' generation saw oil as the place to make money over the long term. Plastics, my kid. Plastics. That has reversed. Now, it went down dramatically and it's come back up to very low long-term return and there's been a sudden shoot up. But I can also tell you, even the oil companies are acknowledging right now that unless they diversify into something else a lot, they're going to be in a world of hurt over the next decade. A quick example of them is kind of moving to a different subject. Now we're talking about oil and oil stocks. We're, we've got clients that have made a lot of money in oil. Uh, we use oil in our vehicles. We have uh, power that is made from petroleum products. Um, so you've got to hear us as being consumers of oil, not directly. I wouldn't drink it or anything. You, you get what I'm saying. But oil as a producer of energy has been the most efficient way of doing it for a long, 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 long time. It's got some competition now. And as the technology comes along that gets more efficient in replacing it, th this becomes very, very clear. Here's an example. And this is, this is a pretty simple one. Heat pumps. Are you familiar with what these things are? Mm -hmm. It's kind of a thing to cool. I, you have one? We, we have three of them. No, four of them in our house. Okay. A heat pump is basically how your refrigerator keeps itself cool. And... People discovered at some point, not too long after refrigeration, that, hey, you could also use it to make your, your, your things warm. But it wasn't very efficient, especially if it's really cold outside. It's hard to get heat from outside and pipe it inside if it's cold outside. Well, the technology has exponentially increased since then there are heat pumps around today just your standard heat pump of today is more efficient at heating your house even in places like chicago where it's very cold than burning the gas directly in a furnace in your house so if you think about that for a second actually burning the gas is less effective at heating the house than a power plant miles away with a 40% efficiency. That means 60% of the energy is lost to create electricity and pipe it to your house and then use it to heat your house. And yet the heat pump is more efficient, even with those handicaps, than burning the gas directly because the technology has gotten better. It's easier to take the existing heat from around us and move it in without destroying the gas to do it with. Instead, you've got this, in, this electricity that kind of gives a feedback loop where you're getting more heat the longer you do it or more cold the, the longer you do it. That's one technology that's saying more efficient than natural gas, which is more efficient for creating heat than oil. So, that's one example, and, and I know I kind of went off and got detailed on it, one example of thousands 
of new types of, of technology that is producing energy uh, quicker and more efficiently than what was available before. So when you, re- you come in with other types of energy production, nuclear fusion at some point in the, in the future, um, hydrogen, and other renewable energies, well, oil is not, it's not a monopoly on energy production anymore. And that's going to cause oil long-term to not do as well as it has in the past. That's, that's a pretty normal statement when new technology comes along. One of the things to get off on a completely different subject is estate planning. Cool. Um, and one of the things I think people are unaware of is the law, the rules, the, the actually the law changed with the, with the, uh, with the secure act. That was like in 2017. When was, when was it? It was, uh, 2018, I think. Yeah. And, but the rules are just now coming out and they are confusing and weird. If you inherit an IRA, I'm not even going to try to explain the rules for when you have to take the money and how fast you have to take the money. Get professional help. Don't assume that you're going to be able to grasp it. Suffice to say, 2019. Suffice to say that the SECURE Act eliminated for most beneficiaries the ability to spread a big IRA's income out over your lifetime. It by and large, has to be taken within 10 years unless you're a spouse. And then there's some other peculiar rules about people who are within 10 years or outside yeah. of 10 years and by, by beneficiaries, we mean someone died and left you their IRA. Right. The important thing is the rules are still in flux, by the way. We have a two, 2019 law. It is getting towards the middle of 2022, and the rules are still flexing. And uh, the second and, version of the act is about to be passed, likely, in which case so, the rules are going to get even more complicated and unknown. The important thing is if you inherit an IRA and you're not a spouse of the person you're inheriting it from, get professional help immediately. Don't try to do this yourself at home because not only are the rules already incredibly complicated, and the CPAs of, of the United States and, and elsewhere are even arguing about how to interpret those rules. They're going to get more complicated. And that was just a real short thing. Um, the big thing I want to talk about, and we don't have enough time this hour. I want to talk about it next hour, and I think it's important, is the Fed is raising rates. People are saying in the news media that's going to cause a recession. A lot of people are saying that. Um, the underlying economy the leading indicators in the underlying economy, and we can go into this into some detail, are indicating smooth sailing ahead. So we have this conflict between two sides, two, two, indi- two sets of indicators, if you will, although one of them is, is kind of speculative, long-term, this always happens, uh, and the other one is these are the solid indicators, and there's a big conflict in the economy right now. Uh, I want to go into that in some detail next hour, but to, to si- suffice to say, if you can't stay around, the leading economic indicators, and there's a lot of them, that we can see at this point all strongly suggest that the market and the economy, I shouldn't say the market, the economy will probably be doing well through this year. Now, the stock market can do anything it wants to, but generally speaking, the stock market reacts to future economic events that it perceives um, and it probably will do well too. As a matter of fact, there's plenty of indicators it'll do well. So when 
if the, if the Fed raising interest rates, why, why the panic? Why are people scared? And I think we need to talk about that a little bit. Yes, when we have high inflation historically and the Fed gets excited and starts doing half-point interest rate increases, which they say they're going to do, and they start shrinking their balance sheet, which they say they're going to do, historically, there's a pretty high probability that there's a recession coming. But I can tell you one other thing before we close out the hour. At any given moment, if you've had a bull market and a healthy economy for a couple of years, there's a high probability that there's a recession coming. Um, we There's some, you were talking about industrial revolution, and, and we mentioned this in previous es- episodes, but this is pretty important to keep at the front of your mind. The amount of corporate spending on infrastructure, new facilities, new plants, new factories in the United States is at a level that we really haven't seen as a percentage of corporate revenue since right after World War II. Um, All these numbers that we talk about since back, way, way, way back, it's because that was the last time we saw the kind of innovative booms that we're talking about seeing today. World War II ended, which caused unemployment to spike massively because you would say why why did the economy have trouble no it, because the huge number of people were working for the u.s military and they weren't anymore because the war was done they they were in for the duration and the duration was over so you have this massive spike of unemployment and it didn't go away right away because many people came back with the gi bill and then went to school they weren't working so we have this unemployment or a population that has a large percentage of it simply not working. And then right after this, after the education period where people come back to the workplace with a college degree, very regularly at that point, it was the first time in the history of their entire family to have a college degree. And we see this booming college growth across the United States at that point, where colleges, their campuses increased in size tremendously. And then coming out of this, you have, and there's good reasons for that, by the way, the campuses really haven't increased in size since then, because we're now just, we're not growing the percentage of our population with a college degree as fast. So the kids of people with college degrees go to college generally. Um, And that's, something we would like to fix, but until we see that, colleges won't grow. But during this time period, this big innovative time period, people get educated, they're retrained, they come into the market, they get good jobs, and they're far more productive than they were prior to the war. Far more. Because they're doing things that are creating the things that other people use to create things. So the exponential growth that we saw after that caused inflation to spike hard for a few years after after that education period. As, as people's pay went up, a lot of people were buying houses. We had a housing boom that was tremendous. People were jumping in and buying houses for a new growing family. Baby boom was happening. Um, all of this is very similar, except for the baby boom part, to coming out of the pandemic. We had this tremendous spike in unemployment, followed by a tremendous spike in people going to college that hadn't been to college before, mostly virtually, or going back to college to get more training in whatever they wanted to do, more education in in the thing that they'd wanted to. We had 
small business growth at the level we haven't seen since the end of World War II, where people said, hey, I got laid off. I'm not going to wait to find another job. Nobody's hiring. I'm going to start the business that I've always wanted to start. So we had this massive boom in small business creation. Suddenly, there's all these new businesses. We went from 2019, the majority of people reached a cusp in the United States where they were no longer employed by small businesses. Large businesses became the majority employers of the United States. That means less innovation long-term. We talked about it in 2019. Well, that's not the case anymore. All these new small businesses popped up, and they're the, the now these small business is the majority employer in the United States again. As long as that's the case, we innovate a lot faster. So we're long-term extremely extremely optimistic about the future, the kind of infrastructure that's being built at the corporate level. We've talked in the past about infrastructure bills from the government being a worthwhile investment. Infrastructure building by a corporation is not always, but very often the reason why we continue to boom. And I, you know, you talk about the Samsung plant in Taylor, um, Taylor, Texas. It's interesting because back in 2008, I stood on the rooftop of a building in Austin to watch the new Samsung plant be dynamited out of existence, to be destroyed. It was a great thing. It was right after sunrise. We all stood around and we watched them demolish a building. It was the Samsung building and it now is the federal courthouse where the Samsung building was because they were building a plant there. And then we had the dot-com bust and they slowed down production and it got delayed and delayed. Then they got really into building it. And then we had the Great Recession. And they said, hey, we're, we're out. We're not doing this. Um, but now they're building a plant in Taylor, which is probably a better place to, buy, to, to build a plant than in the middle of the very center of downtown Austin. Anyway, uh, the kind of innovation that we're seeing in these new plants being built, the chip factories that are coming in, Intel is just spending a huge amount of money in bringing back its supply chain to the United States. Uh, and the, the amount of, it's like $150 billion have been spent or, or promised to be spent by chip manufacturers in the United States in the last 12 months. That is, that's like a government stimulus plan, <laughs> only it's concentrated in six industrial facilities, and it's not from the government. That means that the shareholders want to make a profit doing this, and they believe that they can, or they wouldn't have approved the whole process. So this concept of growth that we're seeing, it's occurring to some extent in Europe as well, but at a much more muted level. The explosive growth that we're seeing, wow, um, I didn't expect to see this in my career. It's pretty amazing. I thought, you know, America's aging. We're not going to ever be, uh, you know, the big innovators. I didn't truly deeply believe that, but I felt it. But to see us launching again from the depths of the pandemic as being, this is the example for the world on how you're supposed to do it on the economic side. Pretty proud of that. We're going to have some inflation for a while, but good things are on the way. So we need to close out the hour. Right. This is the personal wealth coach. 
If you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually do that. That's how we make our living. Um, we have voicemail waiting during the weekend at real live people during the week at 254-947-1111. And you will not get a phone tree. Or uh, 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, you can read our past newsletters, listen to radio programs going back a long ways, um, check and see if we're right. Uh, we also have podcasts available wherever podcasts are available. Uh, you can also email us directly at jeff or jake at tpwc.com. Until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.